Okay, now we'll have for our next message today, Mr. Barnabas Grayson. His message is entitled, Lost Things. Good afternoon. You'll be getting an outline, of course, as I usually provide. See if I have one. Oh, yeah, I've got one here. We, of course, hate losing things. Things that probably mean a lot to us in some way. Materially speaking, that is. I once lost my cell phone, and I didn't know where it was. And, uh, of course, my wife, Carolyn, kept saying, well, where were you the last time you saw it or had it? I said, yeah, I thought, well, if I knew that, I'd, I'd, be, I'd find it, you know. And so, uh, well, ring the number, and uh, that way you'll know where it is in the house. And didn't hear it, you know, so I was, was looking around for it, searching for it. And then I thought, well, I must have left it somewhere, and that was probably my last hope. And I had left, had gone to Walmart previously, and uh, I thought, well, I may have left it on the scan and go, which I did, and the good lady that was there. Uh, found it and I was able to recover it and I was very joyfully happy and, and you know sometimes I kind of panic if, if I may have my cell phone somewhere and it's not in my pocket or something I start feeling around everywhere you know where's my cell phone I think maybe I've lost it or left it somewhere so things can become easily lost at times and um, there are a lot of things some things we can recover and some things that we cannot and spiritually speaking, there are things that we cannot afford to lose, like our first love. And as you read in the book of Revelation, you know about the lukewarmness. And that if you leave your first love, you're not as enthusiastic, you're not as willing to endure sometimes the routines of fellowship, the routines of Bible study, the routines of prayer, and all of those things, and we could lose it. And then our candlestick, the light, is removed. But we know that all is not lost because we have the promise of Christ who said, I will never leave, I will never forsake you. But we have to trust and follow him and take care of those things that we have in our possession such as the things that the Holy Spirit gives us in order to live our life in the right attitude, following Him, following the will of God. So we have the gifts of the Holy Spirit that's given to us by the Eternal, our God, to use in this life, like, you know, the gifts of faith and hope and charity, the greatest of which is charity and these things that must not become lost. Now, in the book of Luke, chapter 15, there are three parables about things that were lost. And, you know, Jesus used parables to illustrate a moral or a spiritual lesson, giving some points to consider within those stories. But in each of these parables, we see that he was doing those in response to the Pharisees who murmured against him, who complained against him in a kind of subdued complaint, questioning him about uh, his association with sinners 
and publicans. In verse 1 of Luke 15, it says that then drew near unto him, that is Jesus, those they drew near unto Jesus, that all the publicans and sinners were to hear him. They came to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes murmured, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And that included, you know, those tax collectors, the, the hated publicans, of course. And they were saying, well, what is he doing associating with these kinds of people? They were complaining because they were self-religious and because they didn't really want to associate with them. And so they kind of kept them out of their realm of, of, of socializing. Had they had something to offer to hear, then these sinners and publicans might have been converted by them. But they were standoffish. So Jesus spoke in verse 3 a parable unto them. And he said, what man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness? That is, you know, in, in the pasture, in the fold. And then go after that which is lost until he finds it. Where we live, there is a big pasture that borders our backyard and used to be just a horse and one sheep in it. The horse is gone, but there were three sheep and the three sheep multiplied and multiplied and now there's 13. But we look out at the backyard and we count these sheep and there's some baby sheep there and they're really cute. They're little white sheep, you know, with wiggly tails, you know, nursing and hopping around. And so we know that there's uh, 13 of them. And if there's one not there, we start looking over, you know, the, the rise and think, well, maybe it's on the other side. And so we kind of we count those, uh, those uh, sheep. I sometimes call them goats. But uh, anyway, uh, you know, sometimes when you, even though they're not yours, you kind of keep account of things. And so those sheep kind of always remind me of the good shepherd. And... So if this man had a hundred sheep, and, he, and if he loses one of them, does he not leave the uh, ninety and nine and then go after that which is lost? Because he, uh, and he won't rest until he finds it. And then when he has found it, he takes that sheep and he lays it on his shoulders and, and walks, walks it back home. And he's happy that he's found it all the way. So when he comes home, this is what he does. He calls his friends and his neighbors together, saying unto them, Rejoice with me. You know, kind of like, let's, let's have a little get-together. Let's have a, a, a dinner or a supper, a get-together, because I have found my sheep which was lost. You know, we do not want to become lost sheep. We don't want to lose the Holy Spirit of God. We don't want to go astray that, you know, someone has to come looking for us. But it's good that someone does look for us. And we can lose the Holy Spirit. One of those things that we do not want to lose ever in this life. Because if we do, we neglect salvation. And we can have this assurance that Christ is not going to let us just uh, go. Without some way of bringing us home. Bringing us back. Unless we, we are just purposely trying to hide from him. And not do his will because it may be too hard for us to do all those things that uh, we're supposed to do and in verse 7 I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner 
that repents, one sinner that changes his life, one sinner that turns around from the wrongs that he is doing in life, that they shall, there shall be joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, more than over 99 just persons which need no repentance. Because he can see that those are, that are still in the fold, they're safe and sound. There's really not that much to worry. It's that one sheep that has gone away. That one sheep who has left the fold. And there has been many, you know, in our, in, in, in churches around the world who have gone and not come back. Now, from other, other scriptures we know that Jesus said he came to save the sinner. That's those who have gone astray. Those who have left the fold. Those who are becoming lost the deeper they go out into the world and that they are in danger of harm and losing their life. So that when someone is gone, you, have, you do worry about those things. That they are endangering your life or already in danger somewhere because they have left the fold and, uh, and gone astray. Now, how does one go astray? Well, it's because they are tempted. There are, there are many things in life that tempts one to come outside the fold. And so they depart from righteousness or kind of leave righteousness behind for a little bit. To leave good behavior behind for a little bit. And, and, and they leave the fold. And they quit doing good. And the more and more they do it and nothing happens, well, it becomes bigger and bigger. And then they do things that often can get them into trouble because they go out on their own, they leave the foe, and they part from Christ Jesus and his word. So when a person goes astray, you know, to go astray just means to wander from the correct path or direction. And then, of course, remember the scripture, it says, Satan walks about as a hungry lion seeking whom he may devour. So he's stalking those that have gone astray away from, uh, away from the foe. So as the feast of Passover approaches, we're told to what? Examine ourselves. That is to just honestly look at ourselves, where we stand, to look at, at our attitude, to check our attitude, our deeds, and judge ourselves and then make changes where necessary in order to go in the right direction and stay on path. And then in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 28, beginning there, Paul gives us this advice, this admonition to let a man examine himself and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup for he that eats and drinks unworthily eats and drinks damnation, that is judgment, to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. When we lose interest, when we lose dedication to the calling of God, we begin to fade away, we begin to go astray. And to discern the Lord's body just means that we need to recognize that Christ gave his life for us so that we might have life. And that we are to separate ourselves from the world, from the wrongs and from the bads that are in the world. All of those deeds and uh, 
bad attitudes of the heart and mind, and to see that it is his sacrifice that sets us free from that penalty of sin, which is death, which could be everlasting if, if it is unrepented of. And so, as we see, our approach to the Lord's Supper must first be done with proper self-examination. And we know that Jesus will welcome all who will, who will come to that great supper, which, is, which reminds us, year to year, of, of God's great salvation. Because anyone who thinks, in verse 29, who eats and drinks without recognizing, that is, the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. Because of the failure to self-examine whatever we don't do in our life or whatever we do not make changes, we're bound to face the judgment that neglect can bring. But we know that this Corinthian church had, had many problems. There were factions, there were divisions, there were heresies among them. And they were coming together to the Lord's Supper, not for the better, but for the worse. And that led to serious problems among them. So the Apostle Paul said to them, let a man examine himself. For if we would judge ourselves, verse 31, we should not be judged. We should not be condemned. Because, you know, when you judge yourself, you look at yourself honestly. We realize that we're not perfect, that we have sins, that there are wrongdoings in our life. Because the Bible itself tells us that there is none righteous, that all have sinned. And if we look back over the year, some of these things may stand out if we are truly examining ourselves. So we can see that we have a need for Jesus Christ, his broken body, his blood shed for us to see us through this present age, this life that we live. So we're reminded of self-examination, looking at ourselves our own spiritual attitudes and where we stand and then be reminded that Christ laid down his life for each and every one of us personally. In John chapter 16, you know, it's a very important scripture. We, we've committed this to memory, but, you know, sometimes I forget a word here or there. But God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. To believe in God is to consider what the examples that Christ set for us and then to follow them. And sometimes we just take it, well, God loves us. It doesn't matter what we do, that we can get by with doing wrong. But that's not why Christ came. He came to call sinners unto repentance and then to do the right thing that we won't have to have uh, our life ended, but to have everlasting life. Verse 17 of that scripture, chapter 3, God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. You know, back in the Old Testament times, you know, God did judge a lot of nations, like Sodom and Gomorrah, and the, the world before the flood. They were condemned. They were judged. But Jesus came, and if you remember the uh, woman taken in adultery, he could have allowed those men to stone her to death, but he intervened, 
brought up their own sins, brought up their own wrongdoings. And one by one, they dropped the rocks, the stones that they were going to stone her with. And so he asked, told the woman, the adulteress, where are those that accuse you and have condemned you? And they were gone. And he said to her, neither do I condemn you, but go and sin no more. So God sent his son into the world, not to condemn it, but to offer to pave a way of salvation for us that we might be saved. And he came to look for and save the lost as he did you and me. Now, I don't know your uh, personal life. I can only look back on mine and be grateful that, you know, Jesus, in a way, came knocking at my door, looking for the lost, because I was looking, you know, to find a way in life that would have value, something that, uh, you know, each of us go through before we are baptized and before, you know, as we repent and do those things that can assure us that we are on the right track to the kingdom. So in these three parables, you know, we see that there is a common theme, that of searching for what is lost and that of finding that which was lost and the sharing of the joy that comes with the finding of that lost thing. So in Luke 15, verse 8, Jesus tells us of a woman who lost a coin. Verse 8, either what woman, having ten pieces of silver, if she loses one piece, does not light a candle and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. You know, they, you know candles, you know, uh, you could, uh, the light... If, like if it's under a couch or, or some or behind a curtain or something, you know, in those days you got to be careful about holding a candle in search of that coin. Today, you know, it's made easy for us. We just got to shine a light, a flashlight, or a torch as they call it, and look for whatever it is that we have lost. Just like we're going to do whenever we uh, seek leaven and get it out of our life in, in the holy days that are coming. But she lost this one piece. She had a set of ten. But that one missing coin left a big gap. And she had to find it. And she probably may not have found it right away. And it may have taken a day. Maybe a, a week or whatever. But it, you know, it doesn't say. But when she found it. Here's what she did. She called her friends and her neighbors together saying. Rejoice with me for I have found the peace which I had lost. Verse 10, Likewise I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repents. You see, <clears throat> there are angels in heaven and all around us that we do not see or take notice of. But these angels rejoice over this one individual who repents just as that time you may have gotten down in fervent prayer on your knees saying, Lord, forgive me for my sins. Help me to change my ways. And you turn to God and through Jesus Christ. And there is joy in heaven when that happens. Over one individual. It's been said that at this time of year, uh, it seems like trials and troubles and things go wrong. 
because as Satan persecuted the saints, as he caused Christ to be hung upon the cross, that it seems Satan is walking about even more in order to get hold of those who are going astray, who might be astray, who, those who are not watching out or praying. And so we make ourselves vulnerable, more so even as trials or confusion or whatever besets us. Now let me uh, say a few things about uh, these, about angels. Angels are messengers of God and they are spirit beings. Hebrews 1.14 says, are they not ministering spirits? Sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation. So we put ourselves, our names among these heirs of salvation. That they are, that they are sent forth to minister. And in Hebrews 12.22. We see that they are innumerable. That they are many. Many, many. And that they have appeared. Oh, let's read that. Where it says, you are come unto Mount Sion. And unto the city of the living God. The heavenly Jerusalem. And to an innumerable company. Just many angels. They've appeared before many people. Such as Abraham, Hagar, Lot, Daniel, the Virgin Mary, Mary Magdalene. And, and, and to Peter and, and to Paul and to others. And we see that these angels, these angels of God are powerful beings. On the other hand, we, we know that. Satan has his followers, his angels, who, who, have, uh, who are fallen angels because of sin. But they are powerful beings, and we read in Psalm 103.20 that the angels, the, the uh, psalm speaking to them, saying, Bless the Lord, you angels, that excel in strength, that do his commandments, that hearken unto the voice of his word. And they have names like Gabriel and Michael. And they can appear in human form. And so we're told in, in Hebrews 13. To, to not uh, forget. To be not forgetful. To entertain strangers. For thereby they can appear. They can for we have entertained angels unaware. So this means that in every person that we meet, we have to be careful how we talk to them, how we act toward them, because we could be entertaining angels in our presence. Now there are angels like the seraphim, which you know have six wings, and they can also be invisible. And I would like to go to uh, Numbers chapter 22. And read about this particular happening there in the book of Numbers chapter 22. In verse 21. It says that Balaam rose up in the morning. And he saddled his ass that is his donkey. And he went with the princes of Moab. Now Balaam had been told up, up in verse uh, 
uh, 12, that God's express will to Balaam was, Thou shall not go. Don't go. Don't go with them. They shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. And so, verse 22, God's anger was kindled because Balaam went ahead. He went, went on. And the angel of the Lord stood in the way, that is the path, for, the adver for an adversary against him. So he sent this angel to stand before, uh, uh, before Balaam. Now, uh, Balaam was riding upon his donkey, and his two servants were with him. And the donkey, he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way, and his sword drawn in his, in his hand, and the donkey turned aside out of the way and went into the field. And Balaam smote the ass, you know, used, it, used it, that stick to, to guide her back into the way. But the angel of the Lord stood in the path of the vineyards, a wall being on this side and a wall on that side. And when, he, and when this donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she thrust herself into the wall and crushed Balaam's foot against the wall. If you ever had your ankle or your leg crushed, you know, you know how it feels and, and uh, you don't know who else to hit and so you might even hit the wall because it hurt. And the angel of the Lord went further and he stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right or to the left. Now you know the story of course, bear with me. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she fell down under Balaam. You know, she, you know, she buckled her legs and just went down and wasn't going to move anywhere. And Balaam's anger was kindled, got even madder, and he smote the donkey with a staff. I don't know why I don't like to say ass, but you know, just, so I use donkey. <coughs> the same thing. And the Lord opened the mouth of the ass, and she said unto Balaam, as the donkey begins to speak, what have I done unto you, Balaam, that you have smitten me these three times? And Balaam said unto the ass, because you have mocked me. And it's like Balaam said, okay, this donkey is speaking to me. I understand his words and I'm going to reply just like, you know, I, like it's a person. And he tells the, the, the donkey, because you have mocked me. That is, he abused him. I would there were a sword. I wish there was a sword in my hand. For now, I would kill you. I would kill you now. And Balaam said, in, and, and, and the ass said unto Balaam, am not I your donkey, your, you know, your possession? Upon whom you have ridden ever since I was yours unto this day. You've been riding me for a long time. We've been good together. Was I ever want to do so unto you to mock you or to abuse you? And, and Balaam said, no. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam. And he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way. And his sword drawn in his hand. And he bowed down his head and fell flat on his face. So when Balaam saw that angel, he was amazed and awed by the angel that appeared. Just as maybe, uh, maybe uh, uh, Spock and Captain Kirk would appear, you know, uh, 
in their, from their transporter. There he was. The angel had the, the sword. And he bowed down his head and fell flat on his face. And the angel of the Lord said unto him, Wherefore have you smitten your ass these three times? Behold, I went out to withstand you. I was there to withstand you because your way is perverse before me. And the ass, your ass there saw me and turned from me these three times. Unless ye had turned from me, surely now also I had slain you and saved her alive. And Balaam said unto the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I knew not that you stood in the way against me. Now, therefore, if it displeases you, I will get me back. So we see that Balaam was rushing headlong in a hurry, not without any due consideration for what he might be getting into, because Balaam only saw that his disobeying God might bring him some wealth, might bring him some power and, and fame living contrary to the will of God in, in that matter. So it's interesting that we see that angels were, are sent as messengers from God and how many times in our life sometimes we've had a close call and think, you know, if God's angel was not there and we pray sometimes that, you know, God set your mighty angels about us those things because we realize that God has ministers to serve. So they assist in God's intervention in our behalf for our good and our safety. Next we see you know this well known parable about the lost son in Luke 15. He became prodigal you know, living extravagantly because of the wealth his father had uh, given him, that he wanted it early, so he was gonna, he was gonna just go out and, and spend it all. In verse eleven, he said, "A certain man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Give me the portion of the goods that falls to me.' And he divided unto them his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered everything he had." took his journey into a far country and there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent it all, there came a mighty famine in the, in the land that he was in and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat, but no man gave unto him. And then he came to himself. He said, how many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger. You know, he realized he'd done these things to himself, that he had gone astray. He said, I will rise and go to my father and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. So we see here a change in attitude. An examining of self and a repentance and in, in, in turning back to God. And he said, I am and am no more worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired servants. 
So he arose, went to his father, which was a, yet a great way off. And his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Sometimes when children go astray, when friends go astray, when brethren go astray and you see them again, you're happy to see them, more than happy to see them. Like someone who's been on a long trip and here they come and you're just so overwhelmed and glad to see them that you want to have a big dinner, a great supper for them. And so the father had his servants bring, bring out the best of things, clothes, the food and everything. And, and now the elder son was in the field. And he came and drew close to the house and he said, and he said, uh, he heard the music and the dancing. What's going on? Because his brother had come back. And here he had uh, spent, you know, with his father. But here was a son who, who his father thought was dead had come back. Once again, as Passover approaches, we are told, again, you know, to examine ourselves. Stop for a moment and think about our attitude toward life, toward our faith, toward one another for the messages that we hear from this, this pulpit. That way we may clear our hearts and minds of things and partake worthily of the bread and the wine, discerning the Lord's body. That is, knowing what his sacrifice has done for us in cleansing us of our sin. And it's that time of year when we search our hearts in order you know, to lead us on the right path. It's kind of like the spring cleaning that we do the putting out of leaven, a type of sin in our life. Like leaven, you know, it's symbolic of sin at this time. And, and there, it's here, there, and everywhere. And that means it's in our hearts and in our minds. That's where it all begins. You know, we can pick up a cracker crumb or a small bit of leaven from the floor. But it's sometimes, you know, we do that more than we try to look at our own self. I have heard of people who brag about their short tempers. Who say nothing is going to, I'm not going to let anybody get by with what they said. And they go off. And sometimes it leads to even more bad relationships among brethren, among families among people, among bosses at work, and so on. So we are to try and examine ourselves to see if there are things in our life that are going to tick us off and lead us astray. And the point for keeping Passover is, uh, is so that we can overcome sin by, by searching it out and then doing God's will. You know, putting out this leaven <clears throat> may seem silly to some, but... What it does is it shows our willingness to obey God even in the matter of not partaking of things like cakes and cookies and so on. And to see the meaning, the story that's in it, that's behind it, which is the importance of avoiding sin in our life. You know, sin, as you know, is the transgression of the law for which there is the death penalty. And it's really something serious to think about. Luke 14, Jesus said, 
You are the salt of the earth. Verse 34. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost his savor, that is its flavor, uh, wherewith shall it be seasoned? With what will it be seasoned? Once it's gone, it's gone. It's neither fit for the land nor yet for the dunghill, but men cast it out. So Saul here can be taken as a person who has lost his saltiness and he becomes worthless as his disciples. That's when the word of God, when Christ becomes less and less in their life as the agent that adds the spice of love and faith and hope in their life. Over in Mark 9.50 it just says to have salt in, your, in yourselves. Have it. Use it. But don't lose it. And then it says. Have peace with one another. So you know one of the beginning points. Is do we have peace in our life. Do we have peace with one another. Or do we hold a grudge. Grudge one way or another. We need to cast it out. So uh, how does salt lose its flavor. We know that salt is a. Both a, a flavoring and a, and a preservative. It keeps, you know, foods edible for, for a period of time. We use it to uh, ice, uh, to salt the roads in, in icy uh, conditions, make it passable. But if salt is not kept dry, if it's exposed to moisture or water, something that shouldn't mix with it, uh, it, it dries into that white, worthless powder. Sometimes, you know, after you've driven on a salted road, you, you see along the fenders, you know, that dusty-looking uh, dust along, along the wheel. Now the chemist, he tells us that salt is a stable substance. It's a chemical bond of sodium and, and chloride. And it's, they, they're held together because they share the same one electron. That's what the, the, the chemist says. And that salt can only lose its saltiness if it was not pure to begin with. And is diluted by moisture or water in some way. So the Christian is told that he or she... Is the salt of the earth, and we need to take this personally. Because the Spirit of God dwells, that dwells in you makes you a salt of the earth, a light unto the world. Because you, me, he laid down his life for us. And the light you know, offers hope and a better, a better things to be. A light shines ahead. It, it uh, guides us along our way. Christians can lose that saltiness. And here's some of the ways. By becoming diluted by the world around. By listening to or what others say that are not in appropriateness. Things that go contrary to the way of God, to his will, to his way of peace and love. Or by mixing the true words of Christ with other ideologies and philosophies like that of Eastern religions or New Age things, even the doctrine of devils, vain philosophies like politics and so on. So, another way to lose this saltiness is by not partaking of the bread of Christ. First Corinthians, I think, uh, Brian, I don't know if I gave you this scripture. First Corinthians 10. We are partakers 
You know, sometimes when you're laying an outline for a sermon, you come across a whole lot of scriptures that you may or may not use. It's like David said, you know, your cup runneth over sometimes, and that's, I guess that's what, what I'm kind of doing here. Uh, I want to read 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Not all of it, but verse 1. Brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. You know, there's a history behind this and there's a, reading, uh, uh, a meaning behind the story of this being put in the New Testament. They were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They did all eat the same spiritual meat, did all drink the same spiritual drink, for that rock... For, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with many of them God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were our examples to the intent we should not lust after evil things, as they also lusted. Neither be idolaters, as were some of them, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ as some of them did. That is, you know, don't test Christ as some of them also tested. And they were destroyed by serpents. They were bitten by these poisonous snakes that caused them painful death. Neither murmur. You as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. These things happen unto them for examples unto us. That upon, upon whom the ends of the age has come. Wherefore let him that thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So you have to kind of look at yourself. You have to examine yourself to see if you're, we're still on course. So if you're a Christian or a believer in Jesus Christ, God, you are the salt of the earth. And he said unto the multitudes that you've got to count the cost. You've got to see what it's going to take to be sure that you have enough to see it all through. And verse 34 of chapter 14 there in Luke, it says that whosoever he be of you that forsakes not all that he has cannot be my disciple. So don't be the one who has lost his salt. Be one worthy of his salt. Certain things to give up, to abandon, to lose in our life. Like things like self-will, pride, vanity, bad habits, irreverence, boasting, coveting, dishonoring parents, lovers of pleasure more than God, holding grudges, lacking forgiveness, so on and so forth. So we want to clear these things out of our life, just as we would do leaven in our life at this time when it comes. And to let the spirit that was in Jesus be part of our life and allow him to lead us and guide us. So as we journey along in this life, you know, things come up, you know, uh, our, our feet and uh, get dirty from, from the world. Dust and grime. And I use once upon a time the cockle burrs that stick to you. The stick tights as you walk through a field. And so our life can get, uh, uh, get uh, some, some of that stuff caught. 
stuck to us. John chapter 3. Before the feast of Passover, Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world, having loved his own, which were in the world. He loved them unto the end, and suffer being ended. The devil now put into the heart of Judas to betray him. And Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him, given all things into his hand, that he was come from God and went to God, he rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel, girded himself with it, and he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Then came he to Simon Peter, must have been the first in line, when Peter said unto him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do now, you don't know now, but you shall know hereafter. And Peter said unto him, Well, you shall never wash my feet. Then Jesus, said, Jesus answered, If I wash thee not, you have no part with me. So we have to allow Jesus into our life to cleanse us. And to remember that just as he washed the disciples' feet, we too, with the mind of Christ in us, that we too wash others' feet. And in verse 15, I've given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. And that's on top of, you know, the meanings behind the bread and wine and those things that we do at, at the Lord's Supper. So Jesus was showing them an example of humility, that the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. So the object of Christ's mission, as we have seen it in these parables that we looked at today, it is a mission of Christ to bring the lost and the Christ back home to salvation. To save those who are separated or half separated from God. You know, to be lost is to be unable to find the way. And we are helpless. Which is, may not be because they chose to go astray. But because they are unaware of the temptations that have made them do so. One final scripture there in 2 Corinthians 4. Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestations of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not. It's hidden to those that are lost because they don't want to see the light. They don't want to see the truth. In whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. If you know these things, it says, happy are you if you do them. All these things that we read from Scripture all the things that we do and all the examples that we see to follow. Happy and thankful that we can come to the Lord's Supper and be blessed by the bread and wine that is the body and uh, blood of Christ who loves us and who laid down his life for us that we remain no longer lost.